My name's Zach Nesbitt. And I'm Rob Hayes. Glad to be back. That's it. Got a uh, flying solo episode with just me and Rob tonight. So that's, uh, that'll be interesting. Hope I'll keep you entertained. <laughs> but uh, before we dive into it, let's just take a moment to thank our sponsor. This week's episode is greeting your lug nuts thanks to the amazing crew at Nordic Edge, where you can get all of your blacksmithing and bladesmithing supplies of belts, tools, and superior steels such as Apex, Ultra, and much more. So make sure you visit their easy-to-use website, nordicedge.com.au, after the show and stock up. Rob, what's been happening, mate? How have you been since I last caught up with you? It's been a fair while. Lots been happening, mate. Yeah, yeah, heaps of stuff. Um... Unfortunately, I'm no longer uh, smithing full-time. Uh, that was a decision I had to make uh, about a month or two ago, uh, just due to you know, mental health reasons, stress of running a business. It's meant I've started looking at some other opportunities. So I'm currently working as a firefighter um, and doing lots of uh, yeah rural work there. So that's been good. I've uh, been working heaps on my farm, getting that ready, and uh, still getting in the forge when I can and uh, showing a few people a few things. Still teaching. But uh, yeah, it's been a bit of an upset the last uh, last month or two. You still get out of the forge every now and again? Yeah, I've really been working on that. Just yeah, just trying to find that balance again, and uh, you know, making sure to to keep those hammer skills sharp and uh, keep those calluses on the hands where they're meant to be. <laughs> oh, that's important thing, isn't it? You know, if you if you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to. I don't want to go back in two months to baby hands. No, no, not at all. That's that's the worst. Trying to build those calluses up again is just a nightmare. But yeah, no, I've not been up to much myself. I've just been doing some fire tools and some barbecue grilling uh, tools and stuff like that. I have been playing with a little bar of Damascus, though, that I flattened out. Did a little test etch on it today. It, it come up with a pretty interesting pattern. It's very low layer stuff. It's just 1084 and some 15N20. But yeah, I, I reckon it'll look pretty good if I put it on a blade or... Well, I'm actually not really too sure what to do with it yet. I just assume blade because I'll, I'll probably go that way in the end. Yeah, I, I put a question out on my uh, on my Instagram and story and uh, I've got some some interesting stuff, but most of them have come back as make a knife. So. Funny that. Knife makers see knives in everything, don't they? It's, it's almost like there's a massive community for it or something like that. <laughs> Must have been something in weird. the water overnight. No, I'm a, I'm a big fan of low layer Damascus for um, for projects, man. I think it looks really good. Those big, striking, bold patterns. It's really... I'm I, a big fan. I'm a big fan of it too. I, I find a lot more beauty in it. I, I just prefer that. That's just a preference for me. Anyway, we'll see what we'll see what it turns into anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I have been listening. It's pretty much named after the movie itself anyway. And it was done, I think, by a fan, a fan group. I actually haven't looked into the band name itself. But uh, it's very catchy. It's great in the forge. And uh, I picked it up from my youngest. And after we saw the movie and it was dropped in there, could not complain. It was fabulous. Uh, and that song is called Five Nights at Freddy's by Living Tombstone. All Definitely right. check that one out if you haven't seen it. <laughs> if you're a fan of the games, you'll love it. <laughs> no, I haven't seen the games nor the movies and none of that. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a total uh, novice. Uh, I, I was brought into it by my uh, by my youngest, and it's an absolute great story arc. The whole game started as a little indie game that he uh, the uh, creator made for his kids, and then it's just turned into this massive franchise now. All this stuff going on, this massive deep lore that the 
that extends into it. Fantastic. It's a good little horror story. It's cool. Funky. What's been uh, chewing your ears off, mate? What have you been listening to? Oh, I ha- I've been uh, doing nothing but slashing all day, and I've just had this one song stuck in my <laughs> head, and it's The Guitar by Guy Clark, and it's this, like, classic, you know, guitar twanging country uh sort of ghost story of a guy who goes and finds a haunted (laughs) guitar that's been sitting there waiting for him for all his years and it's it's a great one excellent well we can talk about anything rob we've we've got the floor is ours no sam to tell us what to do yeah well i reckon i have seen a lot of the trending going on lately about people asking about going full-time so it's your experience i feel is very valuable to it because i mean I, i'm a full-timer as well and we're all going to have different aspects of uh, how we got started and how we maintain it why we're doing it best to shed some light on for some people asking those questions out there and, and give them some direction Absolutely, what are, you, what are your thoughts on it yes let's start at the at the beginning what what made you go full-time what got me in full-time is so i was um I was doing LARP and Boohurt fighting uh, at that point. Um, and so being a broadcast uni student, the only way I could afford any gear was to make it myself. Uh, so that's sort of what got me into the the arms and armor world, aside from have, having been a nerd since I was, you know, knee-height of grasshopper. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I finished uni, had my degree. I'm sitting there, you know, I'm applying for jobs. And at the same time, people are giving me money to do, you know, repairs and small bits of commission work. and I, you know, granted it got me through seven years, but it feels like sometimes it was a stupid decision, but I just dived headlong in and was like, well, screw it. Uh, this is, yeah, you know, there, there's some guaranteed money here. I'm enjoying the work. Um, and yeah, I just dived straight in and that was oh, yeah, seven-ish years ago now. Uh, so that I've been doing it full-time ever since. Um, basically didn't look back, just kept doubling down on the process. Um but uh, definitely some advice I would give to people uh, having done that form of, you know, that entry to full-time making was make sure you've got your bases covered and your learning done. Um, because I went in knowing very little. You know, I, I was still very amateur armorer. Um, my advantage that I had that allowed me to succeed uh, and to, to continue being a full-time business was I was involved very personally in a in a niche of the smithing field that requires a lot of first-hand knowledge, um, you know, being a fighter myself, I knew what people needed to have in their gear so that they could it could be effective for them, and it provided me access to a really niche market. So, uh, you know, from that aspect of sort of business planning, I was covered. You know, my marketing was covered and my consumer base was covered, but you know, I was still learning a lot of the tricks of the trade. Um, I didn't really know, you know, what the best tools were. Uh, that was such a big thing going to my first Australian knife symposium was just meeting like Cole Barrett and the team at 84 engineering and getting those guys to really give me some advice on especially abrasives and polishing. Um, that was huge, but yeah, so I, I dived in not knowing very much and I just tried to you know, ride that wave as hard as I could while uh, <laughs> and uh, brush myself off every time, every time I got dumped by making a stupid financial decision or a stupid business decision. You know, I was lucky to have support networks around me that, that helped, um, you know, mitigate uh, a lot of the, the negative outcomes of some of those, you know, things that, that are just going to happen with, with running your own business. Um, yeah. yeah. So my advice to people is 
find out what you're getting in for. And if you can, I really like the idea of stepping through, stepping into full-time making as a part-time maker first, um, just so you you can, you don't risk everything in one go. You can go, all right, I've got a little bit of guaranteed income. I don't need to all of a sudden make all my income from this uh, pursuit. But um, yeah, I've got a little bit I can fall back on if I've got a bad week or if I go to a, a market or a, um, you know, a knife show and I don't sell. You know, you've got something there to guarantee a couple hundred bucks in your, bucks in your pocket. Yeah, you you can have the regular job and just have the the nine to five, clock in, clock out, guaranteed pay. You'll probably hate it, but it, it's always going to be there. It's a stable income. Um, but yeah, when you do jump into that or make the transition, I should say, into into full time making, it's you never know what's going to be around that corner. You might have a great week and then a shit month. Um, yeah. So it can be really it could fluctuate quite a lot um as, as i've found uh in, in my whole time doing it but yeah i even i did that beginner to hobby then went into the the sort of part-time stuff bit of both and then yeah i jumped into full time but it's not an easy transition to make um because it's a big gamble and i don't like a lot of them are most of them are take the risk and maybe get the reward but uh, sometimes you fall flat on your face too but and there has been those moments that's for sure absolutely but, uh, yeah having a support network around like you said uh, is very very important even if it's not a financial one emotional support and just just for the mental health to keep you on track and with your goals is very important because it's 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 easy to give up um, absolutely it takes a lot more to keep going and, and yeah go through it actually just piggybacking off that point you just made i think um yeah. a really a really valuable resource um, I eventually found, and once again, it was going through going to um, the Knife Symposium, was connecting with other makers running a business, whether it's part-time or full-time, and getting their advice. Like everyone, not everyone's advice will, you know, be a one-to-one -one translation to your own situation. You know, I, I do a very niche thing that's very different to, you know, just a, a I don't like to use the phrase, but you know, an average knife maker, someone selling, say, you know, kitchen <laughs> knives and hunting knives, you know, really um well-known product uh you know i'm doing the complete opposite of that uh but yeah just yeah. everyone could tell you something that was either you know relatable to your business or stopped and got you thinking about a certain aspect of business you hadn't thought before and i'd actually love to give yeah. my little shout out to you know my inspiration here to dom from db blades uh because he's been a, he's been a massive um help for me um just talking over different aspects of business pricing you know, how we run our, um, just our, our methods of productivity. Um, you know, do, do you want to batch make? Do you want to do solo, you know, one-off commissions? Um, there's all these different business models you can look at. And um, Dom's been a great sounding board for me over the years. We, every time we catch up at a knife show, we always talk about the sort of the latest things that are on our mind business-wise. And we couldn't do work that's any more different. You know, he makes amazing modern tactical looking shit and i'm sitting there trying to do the replica of an 11th century carolingian spear um you know it's uh, it's a bit different <laughs> there is there is a little bit of space in between isn't there <laughs> yeah yeah but just the fact that we're both makers in you know a, a related you know aspect of the trade you can just learn so many lessons oh yeah for sure 
um, even just from marketing perspectives as well um, and, and dealing with your customers, uh, anywhere from commission work to like, yeah, batch work, as you said, there's so many variables that can can take place in it. What's the, like I approached the market scene, so I went and did like a lot of local markets, but how did you approach your first steps to your niche market of armors? Um, mine started very, very word of mouth. I didn't do a market for maybe four years, five years. Right. In fact, Christ, I didn't do my first market till after COVID. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just because I was doing such a niche thing, you know, I was at all the Boohurt events. I was running or, or helping to run a, a Boohurt club at the time, Team Kraken in Melbourne. Uh, so I was there, you know, right. four or five nights a week. We're training. A couple of nights we're getting armored up. We're doing armored weekends. And people will be like, oh, this just doesn't fit right. Or I need something to cover this or I need a new weapon. And so my business all came through that aspect and so it started with yeah. you know five guys and they were just my little you know client circle and then it grew as the team grew and it as i went to more events um i started providing equipment to clubs across australia and in new zealand and a couple in the us um at that point i sort of i'd actually you know launched the business itself and uh some people who yeah. i'd either you know met overseas while fighting had, you know, told their mates or um, maybe they discovered me over Insta or, you know, through a recommendation through a friend, but it was all very organic. I'd never marketed. I never went to anything like a market. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't do my first big medieval fairs. Like I, I finally went to Abbey Medieval Fair, um, you know, uh, just, just a few months ago and that was phenomenal and i really wish i'd done it before but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just I had, a, I had a very different, introduction to um running a business uh than than pretty much i would expect most people to experience yeah yeah well it's not like the whole business plan and model and then go to the bank and whatnot and start up the whole whole charade it's a bit different for us creators like that absolutely we just sort of fall into it of <laughs> and for the love of god people do a business plan it, it seems like such brain dead crap at the time but it is very helpful for stopping and like making you think about like oh what do i do if this happens or you know do i want to be a batch maker or a one-off custom maker um because it's very different trying to run a business doing those two one requires a lot of marketing client communication the other one you know yeah it, it's just a different thing and make then a whole bunch spend... of stuff and just put it out there yeah yeah <laughs> or do you spend ages trying to find well, that one right client yeah you know? That's the trouble, isn't it? Because that, that one client could really pay off, but it's uh, the time in between surviving until you can find that one client to come along. Absolutely. So there's a lot of work involved in that. But even stuff like uh, batch work as well, trying to keep things different and interesting and, and market that out there as well. And then you've got to try and plan out your stock and, and a good turnover with that as well. Um, oh yeah like i absolutely love the idea of being a production smith I, I love making a few things and i do them all in production like i'm doing about 13 different rail spike knives at the one go at the moment most of them different profiles but it's a, a couple of each so i'm doing two or three at, at a time hmm. um and i just really enjoy that so i can see that would be where i would want to head i even love the idea of trying to get some uh, laser cutting done and doing some uh, little beginner projects uh, very similar to uh, roy at christ at ironworks is doing with the cutout hooks uh, the beginner yep. hook systems um and all of those just little christmas ornaments they're a brilliant thing to get somebody into the craft and and i love that idea yeah like you said 
heaps of different aspects that you can look at as as you I guess you progressed on like um like myself as well i i went through the markets and then you started doing like online or anything like that i guess what what would be the main roadblock that you found that that's that sort of stopped you from being full-time that's is it a life issue is it more the body's clapping out is it what sort of um popped up for you i did actually have um of course the body crap out on me at one point i was fighting at the Australian National Selection event ooh, a bit over two years ago now. Oh, that and was, uh, that was when my wrist shattered, head, wasn't it? And so that was yeah. I didn't get the hammer for seven <laughs> months. Uh, so, I mean, that's that a, an absolute bad. thing you need to consider when you're doing, um, you know, if, if your trade relies on your ability to hold something and swing a hammer with your hand, your hands are your key to financial stability. Uh, so, um, you it. know, that's the reason I haven't fought since is just because it's like I can't risk going back and having that happen again. But, um, yep. you know, I, I went, I, I took my time off to recover. I did my physio. I listened to my doctors and I got back into it and I was swinging a hammer for, you know, a year and a half and a bit after that. But what got to me recently was just the the mental stress of really just the business admin. I still absolutely love being in the workshop to make something. It really drives me. It's yep. something I, I need to, you know, scratch that creative itch. And I've still got the passion. I go to bed thinking about, oh, it wouldn't be cool to make that spear or, you know, do that shield or axe or whatever. But um, there's so much more to being a full-time maker than being a full-time maker. And that is your your business admin. Um, I think it was Niels Vandenberg who said it a few times that like knife making is knife making, but business is business. And I'm a great maker, but I'm a shit businessman. Um, I agree. I'm the same. (laughs) If it wasn't for my yep. blessed partner, I would probably never have, you know, my paperwork in line or my taxes sorted mm-hmm. or anything like that. Um, yeah. Shout you, out to my wife for that one too. That that's I I agree wholeheartedly in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, so for me, yeah, but, that's, see, that's well, actually, that support network. Yeah, there's that support network going into it. And this is one where my support network, my partner and a few friends has really helped as well. And that is I think the biggest roadblock I ever found as a maker. Um, stopping me either from succeeding or making the money I needed to really call myself a full-time maker. And that is learning to price my sales um, and especially pricing custom commissions because, uh, you know, I've, I've got this, you know, bad um, mental habit of the good old imposter syndrome, you know, is it really worth that much? And uh, there's a terrible thing you get as a maker where it's like, no way I could make that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay $300 for that. I could just make that myself. Um, Of course, we're selling to people who can't make it themselves or don't want to because they want Mm -hmm. your particular artistic style, even if they've got the skills to do it themselves. Um, So having people around who, who would, you know, just give me a kick and like, no, 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 50 bucks more. uh, Or, you know, you're, you're undercharging massively. It's good to just have that. Reinforcement, Reinforcement because I guess. Yeah, yeah like I could sit there and do the math and go oh this took me four hours and this much in consumables and like it's, there's all sorts of little basic math you can do heaps of YouTube videos on yeah. you know how to price your things you know add 20 to 30 percent for your profit margin blah 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 but at the end of the day you do feel need you, you do need to be able to say that price to somebody confidently um, yeah and with handmade gear, that can sometimes sound like an, a crazy number. Uh, a, a great maker I met at uh, at last uh, Abbey Festival uh, told me when he's doing like high end commissions, uh, I think a lot he said something was like, uh, if you don't if you don't feel dirty while you're telling him the price, you're not charging enough. 
to to make a living as an, as an Australian maker with the uh, with the economy we're in at the moment. Um, price yeah, of everything's going yeah, 100%. up, and we've got to pay bills. And if you're a full time maker, your your craft needs to pay your bills. Hundred percent. But you're right. the The economy is always changing, and it's never you never know what's around the corner. It could flip upside down and then everyone wants to be buying again so the handmade market especially has has always had a stigma for high pricing and whatnot and a lot of that hasn't been the high pricing in a bad sense it's just that Mm. nobody understands that price yeah because they forget what goes into it um and being in a mass-produced world for so long you sort of become desensitized to a lot of those things (laughs) people are very divorced to how Um, things are made yeah but in in saying that it has, uh, I have seen a, a bigger spike in uh, the appreciation for handmade items and, and custom made things like that because um, when they can get out to those markets, that are, well, at least that's the feedback that I'm getting at the local markets anyway. And they seem to have the ideas that it has a different feel. It, it's got a different uh, sense to it as well, that it's not just some mash produced item. It is something that only they will ever have, even if it's like a bottle opener yeah. uh, or something so simple. All of the marks, they're going to be 100% different on each item. Absolutely. So every bit is unique. And that's, that's, that's the beauty that they're starting to realize more though than just an item. Um, yeah. So that, that's really where we're at. Yeah. We're, we're not I just can... selling the item. We're also selling the experience as well. Absolutely. And yeah, if I can give a shout out to another maker here, it'd be um, Lucas from Full Forge, who um, he uh, was very generous and brought me up to split his stall at uh, Abbey Medieval Fair um, this year. And, um, you know, we had this beautiful table set out of you know, everything we'd made ourselves. He does, you know, similar sort of, you know, historical and fantasy work, all, all handmade. And he made this big point of being, you know, upfront and chipper and just getting out there going, hey, guys, would you like to come see this? This is all handmade. And I was thinking at the start, I'm like, of course it's handmade. Why, why are you telling people that, mate? And what I failed to grasp is because the second he'd say that, people would come over and they'd pick things up and have a look and they'd want to ask you how it's made. And like, oh, did you really make this? I'm like, yeah, man. Everything from the mm. the ivory, you know, bone to the leather work to the inlay to the steel is all me. Um, and it's because we were at a mixed event. Um, there were people a couple to- doors down who were selling, you know, medieval knives. Um but they were all mass produced internationally uh, and, you know, low quality ones. And yeah, him just saying to people, this is all handmade, brought people over to have a look, to have a conversation. And that led to sales. Uh, So, you know, something that seemed so, that just such a moot point to me that this piece is handmade, uh, people couldn't realize that standing, you know, six feet back, they had to be told. And once they were told they were fascinated and it was, it was, oh, a, yeah. yeah, it was, a, if he hadn't done it, I'm sure I would have got half the sales I got. So, um, yeah, big shout out oh. to Lucas there. He, he understood what people could and could not see. Oh, well done. It's, it's a massive thing as well. Like even, even spruiking like that is, is such a valuable thing to do for your business as well. Um, in the local market, any of those sort of settings too, because like they say, you know, you want to be heard. So be heard. Um, yeah. obviously there's a way to go around it, but, uh, that, that's a, that's a fantastic thing to do, um, because that does generate the stories. And then again, an experience when they bought that item as well, and they walk away with it and they'll, they'll tell that story when it gets picked up at the table later, oh, what's this? And then they'll tell you about all how it was made because they had their conversation with the maker and they can ask all those questions. Yeah, absolutely. What I guess would be, um, since you, you're sort of shutting up shop in, in a sense, what would the future hold in, say, another five or ten years for Hammer and Scales, you think? 
I'd absolutely love to get back to um, to making full-time. Um, I think part-time will probably be more likely, um, especially just at the moment with you know the way stuff keeps getting a bit more expensive and as a way of also helping to yeah, regulate my mental terrible. health. Um, I would, yeah, I would love to switch to doing some, some part-time work um, during the firefighter stuff at the moment. So if I could keep doing that, you know, a couple of days a week and then be in the forge the rest, uh, I would I would really enjoy that. I definitely do not want to step away. I'm still teaching quite a bit. I've got a really great um, relationship with the folks at the Rare Trade Centre in Ballarat. If you're into any cool kind of um, handmade, uh, le- you know, learning to do different kind of handmade crafts, they've got a range of courses there. And um, I'm just about to announce another uh, another series of courses coming in April. Uh, so yeah, excellent. Probably step into yeah, doing I've a bit been more keeping teaching. An eye on the, uh the Rare Arts Trade Centre. It looks like an absolutely lovely place to go. I'm, I'm hoping eventually if I can if I can make some more money to actually get over East because there's a lot of workshops over there that I need to visit apparently, mm-hmm. uh, including yeah, you yours, do. Rob. <laughs> but, yeah, I'd love to try and go over there and have a look and, and even, even try and drop in on a class if possible because uh, it looks fantastic. The, the setup is amazing. Um, it's but, insane. yeah, go and check them out as well. Lots to learn. <laughs> I actually have some emails here, Rob, if um, – if you want to chat some emails. Absolutely. Got a couple here from the listeners. I'm sure you'll be able to help because you're very knowledgeable in this aspect. As we know, our listener emails are coming to you thanks to Knife Maker Plus, where you can get taught the pro tips of bladesmithing by one of the best in the game, ABS Mastersmith Kyle Royer. Right there on the screen, guiding and instructing you with pro tips to turn your knife making game up to 11. You can do all that and more by visiting learnknifemaking.com after the show. All right. We have a couple in from the emails. So the first one here, we'll jump into this. Uh, They didn't know that Sam wasn't going to be here for this episode, but this one here is from Malachi. So it says, it's Malachi again. I've been thinking about turning a drill press into a mill for making guard slots. So here's my question. Would a large enough drill press have enough torque to remove material horizontally? Also, Sam, your Bowie build-off was great fun, even though I didn't get to make it. Um, it was still great fun and can't wait for next year's. Cheers, mate. But uh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, a lot of people have probably thought this about their drill presses as well. Uh, I'm sure you probably had that thought as well, Rob. What do you reckon? Uh, I have tried using my drill press. Uh, I've got a really nice wall-down drill press. Um, and, yeah, I, I've definitely tried to use it as a mill before. <laughs> And my uh, the biggest lesson I learned with this is that most drill presses have what's called a tapered spindle. Um, and yep. it's really good for taking force in line, and it's absolutely terrible for taking force parallel, uh, parallel perpendicular uh, to the direction of its spindle. Uh, mills have a, a different uh, setup uh, that I do not fully understand, but is capable of taking that force. <laughs> uh, so... Um, while yeah, you will need a you know a really good RPM and everything to do it, I don't think that's going to be your limiting factor. I believe it will be your spindle strength. Uh, and uh, I have had it that my you know chuck and spindle all just came flying out and across the workshop before. So 
I would be very careful with that. Yes, definitely have been there before myself as well. I think everyone's done it at least once or twice when they've been uh, doing any sort of knife making, even just uh, doing the the drill through the handle material and doing the little wobble as well to uh, yep. to, <laughs> to get the the, uh, the tang through. Yeah, we've all been there. Yeah, you, you drill you drill bits as well. They they can cause all sorts of trouble if they're just off a little bit um, and they're not perfectly straight. And it's just yeah, it can can come with some pretty nasty dangers. So it's not recommended here on the Forgecast, but we know that people are going to do it anyway. But uh, cheers, Malachi, for the question. Appreciate it, man. Um, stay safe if you do attempt any of that, and uh, don't forget your PPE. <laughs> Definitely. But uh, the next one here is from the next one here is from Thomas Kelly. Good old Thomas. Soup for Tom. Now this is actually quite a long one. Bit of an experience. So this this will be fun. Good day to you, sirs. There are two oddities rattling around in my brain that I cannot find a way to understand. So I'm seeking your blacksmith's wisdom. Firstly, a few weeks ago, I was in Japan looking for dinner at 9.30 p.m. on a Sunday. Pro tip, that's a fool's errand. Uh, Eventually, I stumbled on a small late night tent pub, pulled up a pew, and behind me, I hear this guy say, I'm from Perth, WA. Obviously, I interrupted them with an expletive deleted and soon found out we grew up 10 minutes away from each other. (laughs) My question is this. (laughs) How do you begin to work through planning out jigs, dies, or processes for hydraulic presses and power hammers to begin to do more production run style blacksmithing? Finding a place to begin is obscure as to me as meeting a local Perth boy 7,800 kilometers away from home. <laughs> I was wondering how that linked in at all. That's what I was sort of thinking, but I'm glad you wrapped that one up, Tom. Um, I appreciate all your hard work. Thanks for keeping on, keeping on. It's a real inspiration. Much love, Thomas Kelly. <laughs> Man after my own heart, Tom. Um yeah, well, I've actually not worked with power hammers. I've just seen a lot of them, and I can I can probably just understand the um, the processes for it. But um, production style, I can help with. But uh, what you you run a power hammer, Rob? What's your power hammer? Absolutely, yeah. I've got an Anyang forty kilo. I've also used quite a lot of um, uh, you know log splitter uh, log splitter press conversions. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So I I, I think. Regardless of the tooling, the answer is probably going to be, I imagine, quite similar to yours. And that when I'm thinking about the tools I need to make for those um, you know, bits of equipment, is I I do little sketches, and so I'll, I'll do like a little sketch of like you know my, my stock, and then say all the different steps it's going to go through. And I'm trying to isolate the core shapes that I need to work with. Uh, so you know, I at this point I need to use a butcher tool of some kind. Or at this point, I need to fuller. Um, and so it's just, you know, I'll just make myself a little step diagram in chalk on the floor or in you know, my, my sketchbook as I'm thinking about, all right, how am I going to start with, you know, 40 mil square stock and make whatever it is? You know, the best one I think I ever did was I took, you know, a 40 mil round, 5160, and I made a Moria Goblin Cleaver from Lord of the Rings. You know, it doesn't look anything like a round oh, wow. bar. <laughs> yeah. And it was just, there was lots of different steps. And I had to think, okay, how do I get this huge big flat sword shape that's very asymmetric out of just a round bar of steel. And it just, it came down to drawing it step by step by step. And then it becomes pretty straightforward to think, okay, what tooling do I need for my power hammer to do that? Okay, for this one, I need uh, fullering dies. Uh, For this, I need, um, 
you know, uh, an offset tool. So I just weld up the correct piece on the end of a bit of rebar and now I've got a, you know, a top set that I can use under my power hammer. Um, when I did a batch of saws, I made, uh, you know, a little spring fullering jig. So it was, it just comes down to the, you know, the, the type of action you need to do, upsetting, fullering, you know, drawing out, whatever it might be. And then, you know, it doesn't matter if you're swinging by hand or if you're using a power hammer or a press, you're doing the same mechanical action. You're just changing the shape. You know, instead of using a, a cross peen hammer, I'm using a fullering tool or fullering dies. So that's how I would approach one, the shapes I need, and then two, the tools I'm going to make as a result of that. I, I agree. Like that, that would probably be the best way to approach it because uh, I was just thinking about it then. Is that it's the same approach that I take to making my fly press tooling. Um, oh, absolutely, there you the go. Same yeah. thing. But yeah, so I guess if you know your tolerances for your machine, um, yeah, it's just sort of figuring out what shapes that you would be doing. But spring fullers are a, uh, are a great thing, and and the top tooling uh, for your power hammers as well, um, like the top dressing. Absolutely. Um, but yeah. Hopefully that helps, Tom. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do at uh, Eagerly Ironworks. I'm sure you'll get a lot of playtime in there. <laughs> anyway, the next one we've got here is from Nick. So he says, hey, guys, loving the listener question episodes, and it prompted me to send in one of my own. I got my hands on a chunk of 954 aluminium bronze and planned to forge a knife from it purely for the fun as an experiment. The forging seems pretty straightforward. My question relates to work hardening the edge. What thickness would you recommend having at the edge before work hardening? I imagine leaving it around one mil. Work hardening, then filing the edge sharp, and then stone sharpening would work well. But I really am just guessing. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Been listening since episode one. Nick from Maternal Forest Forge. Oh, cheers, Nick. This one actually is is stumping me because I have never worked with 954 or any aluminium bronze in my life. I'm still a complete noob with this. This is usually Sam's specialty, but I believe you know something about this, Rob, as well, with all your historical knowledge. I sure do. Um, I've gone through a couple of phases of my you know, blacksmithing passion where I get mad into Bronze Age uh, weapons and armor. And, uh, <laughs> really yeah, nerd out, too. <laughs> yeah, really nerd Absolutely. out, too. Now, the aluminium bronzes, totally not historical. They're very much a modern um, bronze. And so this idea of you know forging them is very different to how it's done to... Uh, historically, they, they would have been entirely cast. Uh, but yeah, little nerd point aside, um, 95-400 bronze is fantastic material. Uh, you can forge it super easy. It is literally like butter. Uh, you just got to be careful because it red shorts. Uh, you heat it up slightly too much and you will put uh, your chunk down on your anvil and it looks solid and then you hit it with your hammer and liquid, you know, and semi-liquid bronze just flies everywhere. Don't ask me oh, how wow. I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was forging a Coban culture axe head and um, the axe went up a lot smaller than initially planned because uh, half of it went melted across my workshop. Uh, so you you got to be very careful. Keep those temperatures really low. Um, but it is fantastic material. It's great to have a play with. It is like Play-Doh. Um, you can make some really cool stuff. But... Uh, as to work hardening it, um, I did a bunch of experiments because I was doing some Bronze Age knives, and so I was seeing how high I could get the HRC. Um, funnily enough, I was actually chatting to Sam this whole uh, the whole time I was doing it, where he was su suggesting some changes <laughs> to my process because alum aluminium bronzes contain a small amount of iron. I found some wonderful um, 
you know, metallurgical research papers, and they talked about uh, heat treating bronzes, and you can quench harden them, uh, 95, 400 bronze. Um, so the biggest thing I found with that was to actually, I think you heat it up to about 850 degrees. I'd have to go look through my notes, um, but you then water quench it. And whereas, you know, a, a um, copper-based metal, a, a copper metal alloy would normally uh, soften, a 95-400 aluminium bronze will actually harden. Uh, and so just by water quenching alone, you can raise that HRC to about 40, um, which, you know, for a bronze weapon is pretty bloody good. Uh, yeah. I then tried doing um, work hardening on them. And so I, I made little discs about one to two millimeters thick. And I was sitting there and I was you know hitting them on my anvil repeatedly. And to be honest, I got no noticeable difference. Um, so right. the quenching made a massive difference in strength and hardness. Um, it raised the HRC a huge amount. Um, but I was noticing then a negligible increase when doing um, work hardening uh, with an anvil and hammer. So uh, with other bronzes I imagine that you cannot quench harden, I imagine that is a much bigger difference. But for your aluminium bronzes, uh, I'm not actually sold on the process. Uh, in the end, the really nice custom pieces I did, I did zero work hardening on them. And um, yeah, for a bronze weapon, they were holding a 40 HRC edge, which was better than the historical ones. <laughs> wow. Who can complain, really? Yeah. So, yeah, I'd, I'd go to about a mill and then sharpen on a belt grinder or with files. Um, yeah, I, I would, to be honest, quench harden it. Oh, well, hopefully that helps. Yeah. Good luck, Nick. Let us know how it goes, man. That pretty much uh, that wraps up all of the emails that we had. So, yeah, thank you very much, guys. I'm looking forward to seeing more. If, uh, if you guys can send any more through, don't forget to send to ask.forgecast at gmail.com. Um, I'd actually like to chat some more about some spears, Rob. You know, this is, oh, this you want is to chat your, about your little chance to shine on oh. some spears. Yeah, hell yeah. When do you want to chat about um, spears? Oh, man. That's oh, a surprise. I'd, I'd love to know everything about spears. I, I actually want to try and uh, start to attempt some as well because I'd love to have a crack at doing some for the end of the year around Christmas time. Everyone I guess needs a lot a of Christmas beginners spear. would like to try and do this. Yeah, everyone needs a Christmas spear. You've got to, you've got to you know, skewer that turkey somehow, right? Absolutely. I would love to know, I, I think I have asked you a few questions about how to do the process before, but for a lot of the beginners, where would you start? Um, more so materials. What would be a good start in terms of a steel, but also your haft? Like, is it just grab a broomstick from Bunnings or how do you go about that aspect of the spears uh, before you even approach the steel? Yeah, all right. Half material selection. That is that is a topic close to my heart. Um, if depends I just on the piece feel like I'm everyone making. sort of skips over it. <laughs> yeah, everyone does. Um, look, and before you run out to Bunnings and buy the Dow selection, uh, pretty much everything <laughs> you're going to get in Australia is uh, you know the the good old mysterious Taz Oak, you know, one of five gum species that's been commercially harvested and then just ripped down for a Dow. And that will work fine. Um, spears take inline force, and Taz Oak is fine for that. Give it a good soak in some, uh, you know, linseed mixed with a bit of mineral terps. Get that in there, and yeah, it will it will be fine. You may get some odd splinters in it, but yeah, yeah that's uh, that'll go for any wooden handle really. Um, but if you want to do a really nice one, my favourite stuff to get is. Um, English ash, uh, you know, European ash or elm uh, will also work quite nicely. But oh, the ash species, uh, European ones, are phenomenal. 
and that historically is like right. one of the most popular as well. You does all right as well, but um, yeah, out of Australian timbers, um, to be honest, I think Vicash is about the best, but it's it's terrible in lateral force. So the problem you get is you never want to make a striking pole arm out of Vicash because that thing will shatter in seconds. But uh, spears being <laughs> thrown or stabbed um, will take inline force, and uh, Vicash is fine for that. So they will work, uh, but please don't you know go make a halberd and then swing it because it will it will snap like a broomstick handle. Yeah, you do like your uh, your halberds. I mean, everyone needs a halberd to be honest. Everyone needs a halberd. But um, you you you've got a special connection with halberds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, one shattered wrist. Quite, quite a physical one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, what what would you be recommending for for stuff like that if you were going for a haft on that? Oh, for for a striking pole arm weapon. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If I um I use elm for a lot of my boo hurt shafts. It's very springy. It's quite a soft wood, so I'll often put um you know, uh, lang langettes or longjays if uh, Sam was around and wanted to French it up. <laughs> um, he just loves to say it that way. <laughs> yeah. <Langer. Yep. laughs> Tickling your ear, turkeys indeed, sir. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, no, I love I love uh, love Elm for that. Uh, it's something I've been able to get uh, quite easily um, here. Uh, but the the top of the crop that is absolutely your your European ash family. Um, really springy, Excellent. really sturdy. Um, yeah, hickory would be the American equivalent. If you could find a big enough chunk of hickory or like Osage orange, yeah. great. But I hope you got deep pockets. Um, yeah. <laughs> Hickory is expensive for hammer handles. I don't want to know what it's like for just, a 1.8 meter pole arm half. Just for the size. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, like you're looking at a lot of hammer handles in that in that one big bit. So, you know, be prepared. Oh, definitely. Well, how would you also attack uh, the design aspects of the haft as well? Like, let's let's break it all down into details. We'll we'll go into it. All right. Um, we're doing deep dive on so, spears and pole arms. Here yeah, we go. why not? We got the time. We got the episode. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. I've, and I've made my fair share. No, well, that's it, mate. You're, you're the guy for it. You know, spirits are so hot right now. <laughs> but yeah. um, when we go to a design aspect, you know, we've, we've got the linseed formulas to to coat them, to keep them uh, moisturized and that. From a design aspect, why would you go about like charring or dyeing or anything like that? That Out of the ordinary, what sort of uh, impacts do you reckon that would really take onto it? I've never really thought about like, the... Charring the is really a big charring. thing for weathering, but yeah. strength-wise on some timbers... Yeah, I'm not sure. I I don't really know, you know, how deeply it it affects bits beyond it. I know, you know, uh, in the Japanese tradition, charring can be used to increase, you know, surface longevity. But you know, a handle is something you're going to hold quite regularly. So I don't know if it'd still have the same yeah. benefit, or if you'd sort of, you know, wipe it off over time. It's not not too much of a common thing in in uh, in the world of spears and halberds no. of uh, any sort of decorative things like that. No, the everything tends to be uh, your overlays, uh, your wrappings. The big thing I reckon. And if you're going to talk design on a, a pole arm or a spear, is it's in your handle shaping, how you weight it, where the point of balance sits, oh. and uh, the shapes that fit into your hand. So, uh, having been through multiple you know, museum collections, uh, both uh, personally and online, to really check out a lot of these details, um, something I absolutely love, especially if I'm doing a striking pole arm, a bladed pole arm that's got to have a true edge. Uh, is I always, uh, you know, octagonalize my handles um, 
or add, you know, a, a, the sides should be slightly flatter to give you a reference in hand without staring at it that you could go, yep, that's forwards, you know, forward slash backwards, um, or that's, yeah, so it's so you can index a weapon uh, or a tool. Yeah. And so even you know, if I do a bill hook, um, you know, at the socket, it's it's round or ovate. And uh, ovate's a great shape because that means you, you naturally get those flats uh, already forming on the side. Um, and so, you know, instead of having a, a round tapered, you know, broomstick handle shape on my bill hooks, it's, you know, it's a flattened ovate and then a, a butt swell at the end. And that's got multiple effects. The, the flatter edges of, you know, the oval shape allow you to index. Uh, the butt swell at the end means that you can really nicely always know where your hand is and know that your rear hand isn't going to go flying off. And uh, it's it's reverse tapered. So the thickest point of the shaft, uh, with the exception of the, the butt swell, is at the socket um, because that's where you need the strength. If you look at a, mm. um, if you you know strike a piece of wood or you, swords are you know, phenomenal for this, you, you look at where it's vibrating, um, you, you want all the strength up near the head. You don't want that um, joining point to be the weakest because that's where you're going to have inflexible metal hitting very flexible wood. And if you've got a weak point there, uh, that's where your break will form because you've got this sudden dissonance in the resonance of the, the two materials, um, as well as mechanical interactions, et cetera, you know, a lever point. Um, that's why Langeys exist, uh, is they really help to disperse <laughs> that force. Um, but yeah, it's it's all about that shaping. That, re that reverse taper means, you know, you can get the weight down. You can have that point of balance closer to the top end of the weapon. You know, if you're using a really heavy wood and you don't have a reverse taper, you're going to have a lot of weight sitting down the, the bottom end of your spear or something where it's it's not needed, um, you know, especially yeah. on a striking pole arm. Um, so, yeah. Well, I guess you'd I, also be carrying it around as well. So whatever weight absolutely. you could get off of would be the best thing to, to make it more versatile for sure. Yeah, and it's, it's definitely a thing. These weapons should be as light as they can possibly be. Um, they don't need to be super heavy. You know, Hollywood sells us their, this idea that, you know, they're huge, chunky things. And Warhammers especially are, you know, 32-pound chunks of iron on the end of a stick. Like, no, they weigh like 800 they're grams. They're thrown by like seven-foot giants. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, spears, super yeah. light, 300 grams. Yeah, great. It'll poke a hole in things. Um, and the lighter it is, the faster you can move it, the further you can throw it to an extent. At a certain point, you do need the weight for a good heavy throw, but yeah. 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 This is the deep dive into spears that I want to go for because I, my my dive into it is, is virtually nothing. I, I, I don't know an awful lot about it, but I'd always wanted to attempt one. So the more I can know, the better. And, and what better opportunity to do than, than this? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that's the first thing I always think about is, is my handle shape. Um, you can decorate it however yeah. you want. You can check on Joe's, you know, file work, wood burning, whatever you want. But as long as the shape, it's the same as a knife. The handle is the interaction to the to the weapon or the tool. Yeah. So, um, fit for yeah, purpose. exactly. You get that shape right and it, it makes it either harder to use or better to use. Yeah. Well, you know, any fans of Forge and Fire and whatnot will definitely know about indexing. They do talk yep. about it a lot in the testing phases, that's for sure. <laughs> but, um, well, then I guess it brings us on to the steel ends of the spears, all the fun bits. But, um, well, I guess, what would be your favorite type of spear? Not just to make, like even if you haven't make it, what what would be your all-time favorite? I love a classic winged spear. 
um, you know, whether it's, you know, a small, you know, sort of more warfare style one, everything up to, you know, your giant, you know, Viking and early medieval period ones with pattern welding down the center and, you know, two enormous wings with, you know, boar's heads or whatever it is coming off them. Um, they are <laughs> really lavish. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they, uh, it's the reason processional pole arms became such a thing in the, in the Renaissance, uh, Renaissance and uh, high middle ages is it just a big pole arm gives you a lot of area to do some artistic work. And for the, you know, the Viking and early medieval cultures, that was pattern welding and you know, twisted serpents down the center of your blade. Um, and you know, for later all people, it was etching and gilding and bluing, stuff. and yeah, you can you can oh, just yeah. make that steel uh, a, a canvas to showcase your particular artistic style, and you can do some phenomenal stuff. But yeah, for me, a classic big old winged spear is um, is absolutely stunning. You can do them with octagonal sockets and and everything like that. So yeah, fantastic. Well, I guess um, diving into the steel ends now that we know your favourites. How would you approach building one, mate? Like, what would you chase into steels? If uh, if, you, if you were for a beginner, would you look at spring steels? Would you just ignore that and go for something, you know, really known um, or because it's just not worth the effort? How would you approach that? Well, so there's two ways of making a spear, and that's an integral socket or a separately welded socket. Uh, if I was a total beginner, I would absolutely go for an integral socket first. And that's, yeah, you can just grab a chunk of, you know, 5160, you know, old, old car leaf spring. Um, and you sit there, you, you taper one end that's going to become your blade. You need to, uh, using a, you know, um, guillotine tool or something like that, you need to create a little isolation so that you're going to have a blade section of your bar and then a socket section of your bar. And then you go to absolute town, fullering and uh, fanning out that uh, socket section so that you can wrap that around. Uh, it's lovely to have a cone mandrel or something like that, you know, a little big iron um, that you can, um, you know, really get it nice and round. Um, but yeah, you, you want to fuller and fan out that material, cut away any excess with a hot cut or an angle grinder, and then yeah, wrap that round, forge the bevels on your blade, and there you go. That, that's a really basic usable spear that pretty much every blacksmith should be able to make. Um, it's, it's a lot of fullering and a little bit of beveling and not much else. So um, it's a it's a great beginner step, and if you want to have something to just you know throw in a throw in a paddock or something and uh, skewer some milk bottles, damn cool weapon to have. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Well, I guess um, for for if you were going to go buy a known steel, then is there a preference for for steels for for impact for edge retention or anything like that, or is it? Yeah, I, I guess that that'd be my question. Really, would you just yeah. get a chunk of ten eighty four? I mean, I've seen Damascus ones, and and that would be that would be beautiful. But is it really fit for purpose? Sort of uh, uh, with the, the Viking aspects of the pattern welded steel in that time as well. I would say uh, no. Yeah, no, don't. <laughs> the, the forces are totally different. the The purpose of the edge is totally different. Uh, my favorite steel for uh, doing my forge welded spear sockets. Uh, sorry, you know, spearheads that go into a forge welded socket is uh, 1045. Uh, 4140 would be equally good. And it is because spears do not need to hold a sharp edge unless you are doing something like a bladed polearm, like a you know, Naganata or something that's more sword-like. Um, it, right, it, right. Cutting isn't the, the, the aspect that you're going to really do with a spear. Even a giant bladed boar spear, its point is, it, it, it is the point. 
that's where you need the strength. And it doesn't need to be sharp. You can have you can break the tip off and have a stupid cross section on that and still throw it through a car tire. I have done it many times. Uh, I believe there's videos on my Instagram of me doing it. Um, yeah, and if you go, I, the first bunch of um, forge welded uh, spears I did, I did with 1084. And um, I snapped the tips on all of them. Uh, I had to keep, you know, tempering them back, tempering them back well into the blue, you know, dark blue temper. Wow. Um, and because, you know, I'm throwing them into a, a log or something like that, and you've got this long weapon, and that is essentially a giant lever. It hits, all the force is going into that, you know, centimeter or less, right at the tip. And then you've got this huge lever of the rest of the, the spear bouncing sort of up and down as that residual force, you know, sits there um, and, and plays itself out. And it's just levering across that really tiny cross-section that's embedded in the target. Um, and the tips break off. Or you, that's if you hit the target. If you miss and it hits the ground and hits, it hits a rock, you've just got, you know, this, you know, 300-gram projectile, all the force going right on that tip as it hits something hard and the tips break off because it's the smallest cross-section on a large piece. So all the force is concentrated there. You want something that's got some forgivable, you know, um, is nice and forgiving. It's it's got some it's got some flex in the material. You want toughness, not like hardness. Shock resistance from yeah, the, exactly. from the leaf spring or something like that. And if you look at his so, well, well, arms, what sort of they roll iron. Would that... Predominantly okay. iron because they were a cheap thing to make and you can sharpen it stupidly easily. In terms of the tip taking most of that force, how uh, obviously with forge welding um, the collar itself um, mm. to, to attach, how uh, how much stress are we talking there as well? In, in how, how small would be that, that cross-section from um, your fitting towards your blade? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I don't really go anything less than 10 mil. Um, so right, when okay. I... See, that's already a lot thicker than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, anything thinner and you're really risking um, that that lateral force causing problems, you know, force directly in line shouldn't cause any problems at all, but it's when you get flex, once again, mm -hmm. it's that join and it could be either the quality of forge weld or just the fact that it's, it is the junction point. It's like the tang on a knife or a sword. You know, if you do, uh, you know, a really hard 90 degree corner, you know, everyone knows it's a terrible idea because you want it with all that force located right at that point. You've essentially got the same mm. thing with a socket welded spear. Um, regardless of how good your right. forge weld is, you've got that sudden dramatic shift in the geometry of the piece that will act as sort of the, the locating, you know, the problem point of your, uh, of your work. So I don't go personally less than about 10 mil. Um, and that means, you know, forging over size, you know, when I, when I forged the nub of my, um, the blade, uh, the yeah, blade head material, that's got to be, you know, yeah. 10 mil very least, you know, probably more like 12, 14. And then I taper my socket down, uh, my socket material and that slips over that, put my borax in there, bang, 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 forge weld it all up. Um, then you got to grind it as well. So, you know, don't forge too thin on that one. Um, <laughs> I've forged some like really small throwing spears, some uh, Jareds, Ottoman Jareds, um, and they might have okay. a slightly smaller cross section. But this is, you know, something that's, you know, it's 90 centimeters long. It's really light. You know, the head might be, you know, yeah. they're, they're almost giant arrows basically, and they're just designed to be sort of thrown okay. like darts. Um, even still, they've got so a not you know, as much of that lateral force that you'd be yeah, like, talking it, about, it yeah. intended to be no yeah. lateral force, uh, but still eight mil. 
socket. Um, okay. Yeah, you you want that strength there. Uh, it's not like a you know a knife blade going into a, a handle or something. You need to have a mm. continuous growth of that spine to to con- continue the inline strength. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess the next question would bring it into the socket itself then, actually. The socket being um, like just, just fitting it. Um, is there any tips to fitting it? Is uh, is it all just a, a burn down carved and then hot fit in? Is it pinned? Do you use any adhesives? How do you go about it? Or I'm assuming there's a few different ways too. Um, yeah, oh, you could you could tackle that uh, lots of different ways. Uh, the way I personally do it is I use a die grinder or a file to heavily bevel the inside edge of my socket. Um, and that means you can really get a solid compression fit uh, onto the haft. Um, but no, I, d- I don't do burn fits or anything like that because I tend to have like finished polished my, my head before I go to making the shaft. And that's an aspect of, you know, batch production as well. You know, I never do like one spear at a time. I'm always doing multiple. Uh, so there's no yeah. point in me pre-making the halves that are specific for one spearhead uh, because I'd forget which one was which very quickly, <laughs> um, especially if I come back to something like a week later. Uh, so my, oh, yeah. my way of doing <laughs> yeah, it is, <laughs> yeah, I, I taper... You know, once my spearhead's finished, I get have a look at it, um, you know, measuring how far I need to, to go. And then I just really roughly, you know, 50 grip belt on my um, on my belt grinder, grind that profile into the edge of the spear, and then I'll do a couple of, you know, fit tests as I go. And if it's, you know, a little bit sloppy um, at the top, you can feel there's gaps around, cool, I know, grind a bit more off the bottom. Or if it's, um, you know bottoming out cool i need to cut that shaft down a little bit because i've, I've you know overground my my profile there so um yeah it's just a matter of you know chopping and changing a little bit with your um with your haft material as you're going and just getting that fit right uh from there uh i'll often pin it especially if it's a thrown weapon uh if if someone wants yeah. spears for you know a um, bit of target practice i always pin them because over time that will that shock and then that people tugging at the haft itself, um, even if you've yeah. used an adhesive or something in there, um, that will that head will loosen up. And I mean, historically, some of them were pinned, some were not pinned. Uh, you know, the whole point was if your haft broke, you can just whack it on a new sapling or, you know, chunk of wood. Yeah. So, uh, but for me, when I'm doing them, I, I will pretty much always pin my um, pieces it doesn't need to be a pass-through rivet that's pinned on both sides i often use a nice uh, decorative headed pin essentially just i I get a a rivet uh, shave down the the end uh, to have uh, like a nail like cross section and then i'll do some nice file work or something on the nice domed head of the rivet and i'll just smash that through Um, it it just needs to give it a bit of that you know um, resistance that you get from a mechanical yeah. fixing. It doesn't need to pass through, pass through both sides of the socket. I do that for bow hurt weapons, but that's, you know, for nut jobs are going to be beating each other in their, yeah. in their tin cans. That's, that's a whole different purpose, that one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and with that, my worry isn't them, you know, the head coming off and, you know, them needing their weapon fixed. My worry is the head going flying off into the crowd and hitting a kid. Uh, so it's a... Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's a, It's a different worry from the i really hope most people that are listening to this are thinking about with the uh yeah the the design aspects of their projects yeah i mean the the safety aspects usually come in the testing phase um (laughs) if they're not already figured out beforehand (laughs) yeah that's for sure 
<laughs> oh, that answers all my questions on on spears to to get me started. But uh, I'm sure it's answered a few questions for the people out there as well. And if if they were looking to find out any more about you, Rob, where could they find you? They can find me on Hammer and Scales on Instagram. Yeah, you know, I'm not quite as active as I used to be, but I do. You know, I've got a giant backlog of content, especially if you're into spears. Uh, I've got a, a nice little uh, reel series on me making spears, some tips on how to do it, uh, you know, showcasing all the steps I go through uh, to make some. I think I make a set of Jared's little throwing spears in that that video. Um, you can find me on the Rare Trades Center website uh, teacher list, and you'll see all the courses I'm teaching there. And currently, spear making, I'm actually teaching that next weekend. We have a sold out class uh, for, uh, yeah, first time we're running spear making as a course workshop, and I'm really looking forward to that. So, Facebook, Instagram, oh, excellent. Rare Trade Center, Hammer and Scales, Rob Hayes. That's how you find me. Uh, they'll be looking forward to it, I'm sure, if they yeah, pop along the episode and get all this extra knowledge before they show up. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. I had, I had one student a month ago who came along to my Van Brace making course, so he's made armor, and now he's coming back to make the spear to go with it. So I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, perfect. Return customers are the best. They Absolutely are. Absolutely the best. Uh, well, if you guys have uh, any questions that you'd like to send us, send them on through to the Instagram or the email, ask.forgecast at gmail.com. And uh, if you're looking for me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube as Laughing Fish Forge. And you'll know where you can find Sam. And uh, hopefully he'll be returning for next episode as well. But while Rob is here, I actually would like to issue the next challenge. Since uh, Sam's Ooh. Bowie challenge has finished up now, uh, we can have a Forgecast challenge. And I wanted to make it a little bit of fun, but interesting. So what I was thinking is that we could take a piece of steel. There's no limits to this. Take a piece of steel, make a thing, make a tool, any kind of tool, something that has a use that you, that you need or you, you know somebody else would need, but you remember you have to keep a hold of this. This is the part of it that's a bit of a twist. Functional tool, and then... Take that tool and reforge it into something else. Oh, that's a twist. I so, like yeah. that. <laughs> now, it can be two tools. It can be a, a tool and then a, a something decorative or whatever you want. But, yeah, take any bit of steel. Keep that in purpose for, or keep that in mind for the purpose, I should say. But take a piece of steel, make a thing, make a tool, and then take that tool and then forge another tool or item, I should say. And don't forget to do the uh, the, the hashtags and, uh, and tag us so we can see it or send it through to the emails because I'd love to see what you come up with. But uh, yeah, have that one for the month and uh, we'll check in again close to Christmas to see how all you guys are doing. I'm looking forward to it. So get that creative mind going. <laughs> Absolutely. But anyway, we'll wrap it up there and um, we'll see you guys next week. Cheers, Rob, for sticking around. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, mate. Great to be back.